Welcome everyone to the third episode in the Agilent podcast series. Like most companies, at Agilent we're often asked about who we are and what we stand for. These podcasts address who we are as a business, the values and themes close to our heart, and to the hearts of our customers. In each of our podcast episodes, we investigate a specific theme with the help of three experts. Today our theme is innovation. These days innovation is a buzzword that we hear time and time again. So on today's episode, we'll be talking about what the term innovation really means and what it takes to be truly innovative. From the big ideas that can change the world through to the approaches we use to discover them. During this episode, you will hear from the experts about the meaning of the term innovation and about innovation in practice at Agilent and in research. I decided to start us off with some insights from an innovator within the field of innovation someone who has dedicated his career to nurturing innovation in others. My name is Eric Mikkelsen and I'm the founding partner of Innovation Embassy. I have been working with innovation and disruption the past 15 years and I have a professional background as an astrophysicist with an international career within high energy physics. And what in your opinion does the term innovation really mean? It's simply the idea of trying to find something radically new uh, to improve the business you're in. And, and the question is, how, how do you do that? Could you talk me through what you perceive to be the fundamentals of innovation? If we uh, look at some of our heroes uh, within innovation, and we can think about Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Richard Branson, and so many others, uh, my take on it is that they did what they did. Uh, by themselves. They, were, they didn't have to read an innovation book to know what to do. That's because what's common between these people is that they are working from a vision and they understand that there are these innovation capitals and that if you have them, then innovation will happen. The first innovation capital is about inspiration. It's about creating concepts. I mean, do, do any of you have uh, a clock on the side of your bed on the morning to wake you up. Most people I know, they use their iPhone. And if you look at it, the iPhone has, has disrupted, I think, 50 different markets all by itself. And the companies that I work with when they come to innovation are looking to do that. Second capital is about technologies and materials and components. Just think of a, making a, a bridge. You need to have a drawing of, of such a bridge. What, uh, you know, what type of concrete and steel it's going to be made of. And that bridges us over, sorry for that, uh, to capital number three, which has to do everything to do with relations, the physical relations that bridge an idea into reality. So if I'm making that bridge, it's going to be in real earth. Do I understand how that earth works or will the bridge begin to sink? And the fourth capital has everything to do with finances and, and business setup. And the theory says that if you have those four capitals, innovation will happen. Is it difficult applying theory to something as abstract as innovation? Is innovation an art or is it a science? There is a discovering part to it. You have to use the astrophysicist trick here. And what I mean by that is we can't touch the sun or galaxies or black holes. We only have the light that comes from it down to Earth to figure out distances and all of how that works. And the same thing is true about our innovation. 
we can't touch it before it's made. Throughout the eons, innovations have been happening without any kind of knowledge about steps or processes or anything. But then companies want to deliberately foster an innovation culture. Is that a paradox? It is, because it's a paradox that they want to create an innovation culture because then their opinions begin to mix in. We might have our reasons for why we want to introduce a certain value, but once our product or service hits the market, how the market accepts it is the way that they accept it. A medtech company introduced uh, hernia pants some while back, and it ended up, instead of hernia patients using them, that it had been women who had been pregnant and had birth and wanted to look very, very slim again as fast as possible. And they found out that this was exactly the product that they were looking for. And it ended up taking about 80% of the total revenue of that product. So you never quite know what's going to happen once you introduce a radical innovation to the market. Eric's perspective on the elusiveness of innovation and our inability to completely control its direction made me all the more interested to learn about the work we do at Agilent. If not to control innovation, then to create the right breeding ground for powerful new ideas. And there really was only one person to talk to about that. This is Darlene Solomon. I'm Agilent's Chief Technology Officer and a Senior Vice President. In my role, I lead a number of um, efforts within Agilent, but overall really work closely with our CEO, Mike McMullen, in setting the technology strategy and R&D priorities for the company. So I started by asking Darlene about how important innovation was to Agilent's overall business strategy. I would say that innovation is definitely a key element of Agilent's strategy. Our culture of innovation is not limited to R&D. It's been become really pervasive in our culture, and today I would say it's even fundamental to our brand. Innovation supports delivering trusted answers to Agilent's customers' critical challenges. In many ways, the um, spirit of innovation goes back to our inception in 1999 when we spun out of Hewlett Packard Company. But inception, you know, is not enough to sustain innovation. To really keep the innovation forefront requires the right culture and the right leadership. And in Agilent, we're comprised of researchers and technologists whose orientation is to challenge the status quo. So when I spoke to Eric McKeelson from the Innovation Embassy, he described innovation as something quite hard to control or to quantify. Do you agree with that? That's a very good question and not an easy one. Uh, innovation is not readily directly measured or quantified. I think it's indirectly best measured by the degree of differentiation of our products and services. For example, products like the Intuvo gas chromatography system or our just recently announced uh, chemically synthesized single guide RNAs for CRISPR genome editing and control. Products that really enable customers to do things they couldn't do before. We hear a lot, especially during the financial crisis, that companies are cutting down on investment in R&D. Agilent's investment in research and development has been pretty stable, has it not? 
we have um, really gone against this trend of reducing resources and spend in R&D and consistently invested a greater percentage of revenue back into R&D each year compared to the average of Agilent's peers and competitors. I think a great example is the Agilent Technical Conference. We bring together um, a very large portion of Agilent's greater technical community from across all of our businesses and throughout the world uh, together for one week to really share our capabilities, share our challenges, and look for new opportunities to cross-fertilize and bring new innovations into our products um, and solutions of the future. In addition to the Agilent Technical Conference, we have our continuing investment in Agilent Research Laboratories. In Agilent Research Labs, the time scale is generally farther out than in the businesses. We might be looking uh, well beyond that five or seven years out is quite typical. The good news is that many of those have um, become the seeds for, for new products uh, within the businesses uh, over that time scale. I think another example of, of this really being in our culture and our commitment to innovation is we actually run a large internal recognition program that we call Agilent Innovates that is a uh, internal competition to have really broad understanding of, of all of the innovations across the company and highlight the most most important contributions. So I think we're pretty unique in our industry in this commitment that, that really is quite sustained. I'd like to ask you, Darlene, there have been many innovations on your watch, but what innovation are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of innovations that have strongly impacted the advancement of scientific understanding and of quality of life. So that leads me to Agilent Labs' invention of Array CGH. With Array CGH, we had the discovery that copy number variation is a key form of genetic variation in healthy individuals, in people that have cancer, and in many other disorders that we can now better understand and help treat. So these are life-changing innovations we're talking about here. But I guess they're also essential to the health of Agilent as well, right? Especially as we think about the life science research to diagnostics continuum, staying at the leading edge with new technology in, in our products is really essential. And so the market leadership is indeed a, a very, strong, very strong indication of the impact of, of our innovations. How much would you say that the innovation that we're able to continue as a company comes from external sources? We have two excellent examples in our university relations programs and our early stage partnership programs. University relations enables Agilent technical staff and academic faculty throughout the world to collaborate and together explore new technologies and methods. This informs Agilent R&D and advancing science um, in general uh, for, the, for our faculties, uh, collaborators. You know, this program has enabled collaborations with more than 250 different universities in 30 countries. For my final discussion, I was interested to learn more about the external partnerships that Darlene had spoken about. So I took a closer look at another example of innovation in action 
by speaking to a leader at one of the universities Agilent collaborates with. My name is Arturo Keller, and I work at the University of California in Santa Barbara at the School of Environmental Science and Management. And what we do here is come up with novel solutions to environmental issues. And the work I do uh, relates mostly to how do pollutants in the environment behave and how do we deal with them, how do we reduce uh, the impact that they may have, reduce the use of those pollutants, and, and try to find alternatives to uh, the chemicals that we may use. What is the work that you've been doing together with Agilent? The work that we've been doing with Agilent has to do with uh, understanding the role that nanotechnology can play in both water treatment and, in particular, in agriculture. So just for the layperson, would you help me understand what an engineered nanoparticle is? So these nanoparticles are these uh, very, very tiny uh, particles, a billionth of a meter, and they interact with uh, things that are out there in the environment, and, for example, they can be uh, defined to interact with certain pollutants and remove them from our waters, or it can attach to the surface uh, of a bacteria or a fungi and provide the, uh, the, the, the uh, activity to be able to kill that uh, pathogen. Am I oversimplifying this to think that it's a delivery system? Definitely one of the major applications is a delivery system. Uh, in some cases, it's a delivery and recovery system. So we've developed some particles uh, which are magnetic. And the reason why we made it magnetic is that they help us to deliver that uh, very interesting surface. And then with a magnetic field, we can then recover them after they've uh, picked up a lot of the pollutants. So are there any risks associated with use of engineered nanoparticles from an environmental perspective? If we're going to be responsible of, of the new applications of this technology, we have to be careful about what are potential human health hazards. Are there any and what are those? Does it have a, a particular negative effect on the plant? What are the risks associated with engineered nanoparticles in general? And then the question is how do we either avoid those or reduce their use or reduce the potential exposure to some of those. So we're looking for safe materials that are easy, practical, and not resource intensive for manufacturing these nanomaterials. In my discussion so far, there's been agreement that successful innovation requires an open mind and lateral thinking, but even a bit of luck. Was that your experience when it came to nanoparticles? The way we came about that idea uh, was uh, unique, again, something that we were looking for something else, and it turned out this was the best way to, to come up with these magnetic particles uh, and how we handle them. And it has taken a number of aha moments along the way to make them happen the way we want them, but I think that's one of the major contributions that I've been able to make in that respect. During my discussion with Eric McKeelson from the Innovation Embassy, we talked about the fact that there's always a certain degree of discovery linked to innovation and that this isn't always simple to predict. Nevertheless, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Thinking of the potential use of engineered nanoparticles, what other problems do you think they could help solve? And where could this innovation take us? So by providing these new ways of thinking about how do we get at pest control, how do we get at higher yields, how do we make use of water more effectively, using these nanomaterials, I think it has the potential to solve the challenge of feeding a growing population in a more sustainable way. Hearing Dr. Keller's optimism about his team's research, 
really brought the significance of innovation in action home for me. Something as critical to our future as agriculture can be transformed by the professional curiosity and courage of a relatively small team was a powerful moment. I have always been interested in the theory of innovation and the steps we can take to encourage it. Hearing more about innovation in action and its potential reward makes me proud of the great investment of time, energy and resources which Agilent and our partners put in. That's all for this edition of our podcast. Next time we'll be looking at the theme of sustainability. Stay tuned.